0: In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not comprehend it. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory is the only begotten from the father full of grace and truth no man has seen god at any time the only begotten god who is in the bosom of the father he has explained him lord jesus we are so thankful in this christmas season to just remember your incarnation that you left the splendor of heaven to come to us and for us to die in our place that we might have forgiveness. Thank you that you have explained, you have exegeted the Father for us, that to see you is to see the Father. We thank you for the revelation you've given in creation and even in our consciences, but we thank you most of all for the revelation of yourself and for the revelation of your written word that by the Spirit he gave us the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we come with a deep sense of reverence this morning to worship you, to give you our praise and our thanks, and yet to grow further, for we know the Word is like food. And so with the psalmist, we tremble at your Word. Help us to put aside all the distractions and thoughts that we may have, and to give our full focus and attention this morning to what you've written, that we might become all that you've destined for us to be. Father, we think of the weeks ahead and the opportunities it presents to us as a church here and our other campuses. Help us to be faithful in this new week to reach out to people. And if you would give us the chance to share the plan of salvation, we would love that. But if at the least we could do was invite someone, then help us to do that. Thank you for the family that came down in the last hour that found Christ as Lord, the whole family, because someone invited them help us to be as faithful. So, Father, I need your help. I thank you that in weakness there is strength, and I pray that you would fill me and use me and speak through me, that together we might have our minds renewed and brought in conformity with the revelation of Holy Scripture, and I ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Would you take your Bibles this morning, please, and turn to the book of Revelation chapter 21? For those of us uh, who are here for the first time, we've been working our way chapter by chapter and verse by verse through this great book, and certainly this is a book that's been capturing our attention, it's been stirring our imagination, and it's pointing us to the grand and glorious plan that God has in front of us, and today we're looking at one dimension of that, our destiny in heaven. Now, I've already preached over 60 hours On the book of Revelation. And if you want to study it, you can download the Search the Scriptures app, and you can listen to all the messages. The word revelation, as many of you know, is the Greek word apokalypsis. It means to unveil, to uncover. And so in some of our English Bibles, it doesn't say the revelation is the title, but the apocalypse. That's okay. That's a good descriptive term if we know what the word means. Of course, the chapter divisions, the verses, and even the book titles are not inspired. They're put there so that we can find our way around. But what I find very fascinating is that the book that is supposed to reveal and open itself to us such that we can have a blessing is one of the most closed books in all of the Bible. Here, this book, that's the conclusion to the Bible, is a book that God wants us to read and to understand and to benefit from and be changed by. And one of the reasons it is a mysterious book to so many is because of the way they approach it. They think that there is some secret method of interpreting the book of Revelation. But we need to interpret Revelation just like we interpret the Old Testament, And what's fascinating about this particular book is there's 404 verses in the Revelation. 303 verses are direct references or allusions to Old Testament passages. Some would double or triple that because some passages are repeated more than once. But 75% of the book is rooted in the Old Testament. And never once does it say, well, Isaiah said or Moses said. It just states the Old Testament truth or principle or verse itself, and it's woven together like a beautiful mosaic. So how do we interpret the Old Testament? We interpret it literally. We take a plain grammatical historical interpretation. How do we know that's the right way to interpret the Bible? Because within the Old Testament itself, you see writers interacting with one another, And when the plain sense makes good sense, you shouldn't seek any other sense or you'll come up with nonsense. And when you come into the New Testament, you see Christ and the apostles interfacing with the Old Testament, and they just simply, literally apply it. We're not dismissing that there are metaphors and similes and the like, but when you understand what the symbol means, then you literally believe it. And so half the problem is, one, we don't recognize the use of the Old Testament in Revelation, and the other half is because we don't recognize God's plans and purposes for the people of Israel. And so we've spoken a little bit about replacement theology in this series, and if that's a new term to you, it basically says that God is done with national Israel, that the church, the body of Christ, has replaced Israel. And so, it's become very popular in the last decade or so, replacement theology and American evangelicalism. And so, when you come to chapter 4 all the way through 18, what we call the futuristic section of the book, they say that's all history. It's already been fulfilled. The only thing that is still in the future, they would say, would be the second coming of Christ. And it totally butchers the book, and instead of this book being a great blessing it becomes really difficult for people to understand. So here we are this morning in Revelation chapter 21. This is the third part of a message when heaven comes to earth. I want to begin where we left off last time in verse 15. I hope you brought a Bible. I promise you'll get 50% more out of any sermon I preach if you have a copy of God's Word in your lap. Follow along. The one who spoke with me, had a gold-measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall. The city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as the width. And he measured the city with the rod 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height are equal. And he measured its walls 72 yards, according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. The material of the wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysopras. the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God the Almighty and the the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed, and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, and nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Born-again Christianity today is largely the product of 20-minute sermons, not to mention the seeker-sensitive paradigm that the church has adopted in our day. And so there is a rejection of the sufficiency of Scripture. We think we need something else. But as the Protestant Reformers underscored, like generations before them, sola scriptura, That's Latin for Scripture alone, is really our only need. And historically, Orthodox believers have always affirmed that. It's the cultists who have something beyond the Bible. It's our Roman Catholic friends who say that tradition, and when the Pope speaks ex cathedra on an issue of faith and morals, that he speaks with the same level and authority as the Bible itself. And sadly evangelicals, in some ways, very subtly, have adopted the same mindset. Think about heaven, which is our subject today. There was a book that came out less than a decade ago. It was called Heaven is for Real. And it was about a four-year-old boy, Colton Burbe, who has a vision of heaven, and he has his dad write all about it. He claims that during his surgery, when his appendix burst, That nearly took his life. Then he went to heaven and he came up with all of these fanciful and peculiar details that are characterized in that book. And of course, the family, not to mention the publishers, made millions of dollars on that so called experience. Well, not wanting to be outdone and Wanting to get on the bandwagon, one year later in 2011, Thomas Nelson, a so-called Christian publisher, a publisher that you used to be able to trust but you cannot any longer, they released a book called My Trip to Heaven. As a pastor, I received more junk mail and advertisements on these two books alone than I suppose anything I've ever received. They're letting me know there are Sunday school lessons for children, for teenagers, for adults that are based on these books so that we can learn what heaven is really about. And of course, as you might expect, these books never agree with one another as to what the details of heaven are like. For for instance, Colton Burbay in his book, Heaven is for Real, he says in that book, quote, the Holy Spirit is bluish and transparent and almost ghost-like. And then he says, but the Holy Spirit does not have wings. By contrast, David Taylor, author of My Trip to Heaven, says on page 67, the Holy Spirit is bright white, has a body, and also has huge, white, beautiful wings as part of his form. (laughs) Look, these kind of statements are contradictory to one another. Colton says, and this all happened, you've got to realize, in three minutes... He said that he witnessed the battle of Armageddon. And in the book that dad records for the boy, the battle, he said, Colton, was with Jesus, the angels, and the good people going against Satan and the monsters and the bad people. And I got to see it happening, and I got to see my dad in the battle. I don't think his dad was in the battle. And if you were here unless he's on the opposing team and he misses the rapture. But if you were here, you know that that statement alone is filled with error when we studied the Battle of Armageddon. Listen, then a book comes out, and it's called The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven. Here's a six-year-old boy who um, also is uh, on the operating table has this so-called out-of-body experience, near-death experience. It was a best-selling book. Uh, It sold over a million copies, uh, and the book was put out by Tyndale House and distributed through Lifeway Books. Again, two presses that can no longer be trusted. And Lifeway promotes this book, quote, as a supernatural encounter that will give you new insights on heaven, angels, and hearing the voice of God. And so Alex Malarkey, and there's a lot of malarkey in the book, trust me, he uh, says this years later after he's saved. This just came out in this calendar year, in February of this year. He wrote Lifeway and other retailers across America, "'Please forgive my brevity, but I have to keep this short. I did not die. I did not go to heaven.'" When I made the claims I had never read the Bible, I said I went to heaven because I thought it would get me attention. When I made the claims that I did, I had never read the Bible. People have profited from lies and continue to. They should read the Bible, which is enough. The Bible is the only source of truth. Anything written by man cannot be infallible." It is only through repentance of your sins and belief in Jesus as the Son of God who died for your sins so that you can be forgiven that we will go to heaven. We must not learn of heaven outside of what is written in the Bible by reading a work of man. I want the whole world to know that the Bible is sufficient. Those who market these materials must be called to repent and hold the Bible as enough in Christ Alex Malarkey. It's quite fascinating When you read these books with all of their intricate details, they are as erroneous as they are seductive. And sadly, Christian publishers today have jettisoned all integrity. And so we always need something else. And people want to talk about their experiences. God spoke to me. We'll talk about what it means and what it doesn't mean for God to speak to you when we come to the next chapter. But they want something beyond the scripture, it's a little more dramatic. It's a little more colorful, and it's far more profitable for both the authors and the publishers. These books sell like hotcakes, and in a day when most of God's people are undertaught and are naive, they will quickly gobble up these erroneous accounts. Do you remember on that occasion when Jesus was speaking with Nicodemus about entering heaven, the kingdom of God? He reminded Nicodemus, he said, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. In the context, Jesus is reminding Nicodemus of his authority and the validity of what he is saying, because he left heaven and came to earth, and he speaks as God the Son with absolute authority. He's saying, listen, Nicodemus, none of your earthly teachers can really teach you about how to enter the kingdom of God. But I am one who came from heaven because I am God in human flesh. The Word became flesh. We will celebrate that this month. And my testimony carries full weight in reality. In other words, books like Heaven is for Real go far beyond what Christ and the apostles have recorded in Scripture. Now, on our own radio station several years ago, I called in. I was just so bent out of shape but I, by God's grace, kept my composure. And they were promoting one of these books. And the rationale is, well, Paul had an experience where he described what heaven was like. John certainly does in the Revelation. So why can't someone today? Paul and John were apostles. To be an apostle, you had to have been personally hand-selected by Jesus Christ as his representative You had to have seen him in his resurrected body, and if those two things were true, then God would confirm that he truly made you one of his apostles and that you would do the signs, wonders, and miracles that only an apostle can do, i.e., there are no apostles today. These men can speak with authority because they are God's men. So there's no reason to believe anyone who has these out-of-body experiences and the accounts are filled with confusion, with contradiction, with bad doctrine. Now, we should study about heaven. The Bible says, set your mind on the things above. And that's why these things sell like cakes, because people want to know what heaven is really like. But why don't we have pastors who open God's Scripture and find out what God says it is really like? That's what we're supposed to be doing. And so we are learning from the only authoritative source the Holy Bible. And here in this 21st chapter alone, there are 10 truths about what heaven is like. Let me just briefly review the first six to walk us into the context of where we are, and then we'll look at four more today. We first learned in verse 1 that heaven is a permanent place. There's a note-taking outline if you're new. Heaven is a permanent place. The chapter opens, "'Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth.'" For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. We saw that the capital city, what today we usually call heaven or the Father's house or paradise or the new Jerusalem, that someday it will literally leave from where it is, and it will sit down on a brand new planet. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. In other words, the planet we're on today is temporary. But God is going to make a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And the capital city will come down and sit on that place. And we'll call the whole ball of wax heaven. It's permanent. Second, we learn beginning in verse 2 that heaven is a prepared place. Heaven is a prepared place. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband i stop there for a moment. We're told it is made ready and is the Greek word that is sometimes translated prepared. It's the same word Jesus used in John 14 in the upper room when he said, I go and I prepare a place for you. And describing the great men and women of the Old Testament in Hebrews 11 we're told that these saints, quote, desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be their God, for he has prepared, same word, he has prepared a city for them. You know that if God has prepared a place known as heaven, paradise, my father's house, the new Jerusalem, one of many names, then you know it's got to be spectacular. And the Bible says here, it is made, it is being made ready. It's a present ongoing tense. It's not completed yet. God is making it ready. There are some changes even from the new city that we've studied already in Revelation. What God will reveal in this chapter as we'll see in a moment. But if God is making it ready, it's going to be magnificent. He's putting the finishing touches on it. So it's a permanent place, It is a prepared place. But I also want you to notice that heaven is a pleasing place. It is a pleasing place. Now in verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Now right now, born-again people who have died have gone on to this place. Right now, for those of us who are left behind, we are worshiping God whom we cannot see. But it's going to change dramatically after the rapture or when God carries you to heaven through death because it says here in this verse, and God himself will be among them. We will be in the presence of God himself. Furthermore, we're told in verse 4, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no longer any death There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. In other words, the first way of life that we know today here on planet Earth, its language is death, mourning, crying, pain. Those things are going to pass away into a brand new world. There'll be no more funerals, no more graves, no more hospitals, no more broken bones, no more broken hearts, no more broken hopes, no more crying. You say, that's too good to be true. Generally speaking, when something is too good to be true, it's too good to be true. Unless the one speaking it is absolute truth. He is called not just the Holy Spirit. He's called the Spirit of Truth. And so anticipating what some might read, John will write, And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. And to these people who were the original audiences for this particular book, they were under tremendous heartache and persecution, as we've already studied. And God is reminding them, everything that I am telling you is faithful, and it is true. Heaven's a permanent place. <clears throat> heaven is a prepared place. It's a pleasing place. I also want you to see heaven is a purified place. Let's begin reading here in verse 6. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the springs of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars... Their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now, that little word, but, you should circle it at the start of verse 8. It is drawing a huge contrast between what we read in verses 1 through 7 and what follows. The sins of the unbelieving world will exclude them from this place, and their place will be with the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. These are not those who are the overcomers that are described in verse 7. These are those who are overcome by sin itself because they never received Jesus as Lord. Now, the world considers us as born-again evangelicals to be losers. But the real losers are the lost people, and it's very sad. The point of the passage, of course, is not to imply that good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell you are saved by grace alone. You are saved by grace through faith, but the faith that saves is never alone. It produces a changed life. And there are many who, Titus says, profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him. And so this passage is not dealing with the basis or the ground of our salvation, but the evidence, the fruit of someone who's truly met Christ. Heaven, it's a permanent place. It's a prepared place. It's a pleasing place. It's a purified place. And then I want to underscore, and you're thinking, it's a phenomenal place. Look now at verse 9 in what follows. What we read here is absolutely breathtaking. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper." Now, the impression that John has when he sees this place is it's like a gigantic, brilliant jewel. It is crystal clear Jasper, meaning it's flawless, and it's magnificent in its beauty. And again, those who you love and know that met Jesus... Absent from the body, present with the Lord, this is the place that they are at. And today, it is what we call heaven, but in the future, it will just be the capital city of all that God has created for us. Now, we saw last time that the Jasper Stone is also used to describe God Himself in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 3. Some of you wrote that out in your margin last time. And it describes the brilliance and the magnificence even of God, and not just God, but now of the city itself. Now, remember, John is getting an aerial view. He's brought up on top of a high mountain, and he watches the new Jerusalem coming down, and the angel is descriptively telling him all about it, and he records it. Now, heaven is a phenomenal place, and it is also a private place. Look now at verse 12 it had a great and high wall with 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels. There were three gates on the east and three gates on the north and three gates on the south and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Now, beginning now in verse 12 through verse 14, we're given some of the major design specifications of this city. And I think it's significant, as we've already studied, that the names of the 12 tribes and the names of the apostles are permanently inscribed on this city. These verses blow covenant theology out of the water. It's the final nail in the coffin where they say the church has replaced Israel. No, God is still affirming throughout all of eternity the 12 names of the 12 sons because God is not done with Israel. He used Israel to bring our Savior into the world and He will use Israel to bring Him back. And so God is referencing and distinguishing Israel and the church for these are the only two groups of people, those who are believers within Israel and those who are believers within the true church. And God makes it very clear, it's private. Occasionally you walk up to the door and it says private no admittance. This is a private place. And only Jesus can get you there. For He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Me. Now that brings us to where we left off. I spent several hours just on what we've studied. So if it's new to you, go back and listen to those messages. But let's carve some new ground this morning. The seventh characteristic here in chapter 21 is that heaven is a proportionate place. Heaven is a proportionate place. Let's look at heaven's proportions. And you might expect that because God is a God of order. Verse 15, the one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall. Now, of course, the one who spoke to John, we met him originally in chapter 17 in verse 1, when he gave him a tour of the devil's city. Let me remind you of what he said there. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. Now, apparently, this is the same angel, of which there are seven, and they hold seven bowls of God's wrath, and we studied each of those bowls. And this angel, on this occasion, showed John the judgment that God was going to bring on the devil's city. Babylon, which we studied in the future, will be the capital city of the Antichrist, and that city is described as the great harlot. Why? Because they gave their love and affection to a false Messiah, to the Antichrist himself. And so here John is getting a picture of a different city, and it's called the Holy City. And the people in this city are not likened to a harlot, but the city and the people within it are likened to the bride. They are likened to the wife of the true Messiah, the Lamb of God, who is Jesus. The closeness of the words are unmistakable. And God is just reminding us, you're going to be identified with one of true groups, those that know the Lord and those who don't. Two ways, the world's way or God's way. There's no in-between way. And so in verse 15, he says, the one, <clears throat> the one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod <clears throat> to measure the city and its gates and its walls. Now, the fact that the angel's measuring rod is made out of gold, among other things, reflects the dignity of the task that God has given this servant. He's measuring the gates and the walls. Now, if you remember, if you've studied the Holy of Holies, all of the furniture in the Holy of Holies is made out of gold. And that was the place where God would literally come, his Shekinah, his presence would come into that section of the tabernacle later later the temple. But here in the New Jerusalem, even this measuring rod is made out of gold because this city is valuable to God. Look at verse 16. The city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as the width. And he measured the city with the rod 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height are equal. God is giving us the measurements of this city, and he tells us that the length, the width, and the height are equal proportionately. In other words, it's as long as it is wide, and it is as wide as it is high. Now, occasionally, 50, 75 years ago, there were some really sloppy expositors who said that heaven was like a pyramid. And they say, well, there's three descriptions here of a pyramid. I don't think so. Number one, God would never design the holy city after the pagan pyramids that the Egyptians came up with where they worshiped a false god, the sun god, Ray. Not to mention God describes this place like a square. Not to mention that in some ways it mimics a place that we know was cubular in construction. You might want to put in the margin 1 Kings 6, 19 and 20. <clears throat> 1 Kings 6:19 and 20. Let me read it to you. Then he prepared an inner sanctuary within the house in order to place there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits in length, 20 cubits in width, and 20 cubits in height, and he overlaid it with pure gold. He also overlaid the altar with cedar. It's almost like that coming place that we are headed for is a miniature holy of holies. And we're told in the Scripture that it is 12,000 and attached to the word is the Greek word stadion. And a stadion is your marginal note in the NASB gives you the length. And so putting the language together the New American Standard rightly interprets it by saying it is 1,500 miles on each side. And just as the Holy of Holies was cubular, and it uses the same type of measurements, length, width, and height, and its cubular structure is affirmed in other passages, so is this city. Now, occasionally people will say, well, will there be enough room for all the people who have ever lived to be able to be here? Well, first of all, not everyone who has ever lived will be here. But if you were to take this city, it would stretch from Canada to Mexico. It would go from the Atlantic Ocean to the Rockies. But it's cubed. It's the same distance high. Think for just a moment. Here's a slide of the tallest building in the world. It's in Dubai. It's the Burj Khalifa Tower there on the Arabian Gulf. It's 2,717 feet tall. Now, here's a picture of the tallest mountain in the world, Mount Everest, which most of you know is 29,029 feet above sea level. Well, if you could somehow compare these three structures and put them side by side, it might look like this. Down on the right-hand corner is the tallest building in the world. Next to it is the tallest mountain in the world, and next to that is the Father's house. It towers 15 miles into the sky when it will be set here on planet Earth. It will go past the world's troposphere uh, into where the stratosphere begins. It is so high, it's as if to say God is saying, I am showing people my greatness, that I am, as the one true and living God, describing what this place is like. Now, if Henry Morris is correct, and he's certainly a great biblicist, he did some fantastic works on the book of Genesis in his lifetime. He predicts that there have been a 100 billion people who have lived in the history of the world since the creation of Adam. I don't know if that's true. But for the sake of argument, let's just say 20% of them were saved. That would mean there would be 20 billion people in heaven this morning, and there would be enough room for each person to have their own 75-acre private estate. This is a huge, huge place. We're here on earth today. We're living on the outside, but someday we'll walk on the inside of God's magnificent city. If, of course, you know Christ as your Lord and Savior. But remember, this city is, again, just a capital city, but it's an expression of the greatness of all that God has made. And sometimes, because Paul says God's invisible attributes, His eternal nature and divine power are seen through the things that He has made, we would do well just to reflect on the things that God has made. So men are without excuse. They are without witness. For instance, if Saturn were to replace the moon, it would look like this this is what you would see daily. Uh, Here's a single comet. We hear about comets all the time. Here's a single comet, average size, according to science, up against a big city. These things are big. When you look up into the sky at night, you see the Milky Way, and you see that little yellow circle. That's what you can see with the naked eye. And we know that our galaxy is one of billions. Here is a picture of 100,000 or so galaxies near the Milky Way that men through their telescopes have been able to map. And that little dot, if you can make it out, is what we see, and this is what we at least know, and that's only 100,000 galaxies, and it's predicted now there are billions of galaxies. We haven't seen anything yet. There is so much that is in front of us. And so when God creates the new Jerusalem, it bears the benchmark of His greatness, of His omnipotence, of His omniscience in every respect, and it's the place that God is preparing for those who love the Lord. It's a proportionate place. Notice number eight there on your outline, heaven is a priceless place. It's priceless, This place is beyond value. It is priceless, which is obvious just by looking at the walls, much less going inside. Let's look at the outside walls. And he measured its wall (coughs) 72 yards. The Greek says 144 cubits, or 216 feet, which means 72 yards, which is just shy of three-fourths of one of our football fields which makes it proportional to the height of the structure itself. And he adds, just so we will not be confused, that these measurements are according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. In other words, to give us clear definition of what these measurements are, he's saying the same measurements that they were using on earth in John's day are identical to the measurements that this angel is using as he takes scope of this city. The cubit, the measure of a man, is the same as the angel's cubit, so to speak. In other words, you can take these numbers as literal. Now, beginning in verse 18, we're told the material of the wall was jasper. And the word material, literally meaning to build into, indicates that God has built into these walls certain materials. And the first one he mentions is jasper. 99% of jasper stones would look like this. Here's a picture. That's the color. Can you imagine approaching this city as you're being ushered into the city by an angel of God? Because that's how you're taken. And how beautiful. You know, I think of a little child that is being carried to heaven, or an elderly person, and there was some maybe apprehension, but an angel of God, one of God's messengers sent out to care and service those who know Christ as their Savior, one of those angels will usher you in, and he he carries you towards the great city, and you see these walls that are blood red in color. And how appropriate, because we have not been purchased with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of a lamb. The material of the wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The whole city appeared to shine as a mass of pure gold. Now, if you go to Jerusalem today, as this next slide reminds us, it is made out of Jerusalem limestone. Of course, for centuries, Jerusalem was populated and unpopulated, and in the 1800s, almost no one lived there. It was a desolate place. Well, the Brits took it over in 1917 and had it until the time Israel became a nation. And they dictated that every building must be made out of Jerusalem limestone. And so when you go there, with the exception of a few, very few buildings, all of them are made out of Jerusalem limestone. This is a hotel that I saw. And I said, I'm going to get a picture of that. Modern Hotel, even Jerusalem Limestone. It's, it's magnificent. And what is so magnificent is when the sun sets. When I was there last December and I was teaching college students over there, I brought them to this one hill at the sunset, and the whole city just looked golden. It was absolutely breathtaking. And so the Brits had it made out of this yellow, golden you kind of limestone, because many of them ruling at that time were born-again Christians, and they made it as a gesture to what we as believers someday will meet in the real golden city. And the city was pure gold, like clear glass. Now, the best quality of glass in John's day was clear glass. And so he's reminding us this is not like second-rate gold. This is the best quality gold that you can ever imagine. Now he begins to describe further the foundation stones. And the stones are not hidden because God wants to affirm how magnificent they are. We've already noted that there are 12 foundational stones of the city that have the 12 names of the apostles. In 12, we spoke about the importance of that number. But these stones, I mean, they're going to be something. Here's a picture of uh, a stone, the one that this lady is standing next to. If you go with me to Jerusalem, we go into the rabbinical tunnels that have been opened for the last 15 years or so. What they are is ground level in Jesus' day. And this particular stone that this lady is standing next to is 45 feet long. It's 12 feet high. It is 14 feet deep. It weighs 600 tons. It'd be an equivalent to 200 elephants or two 747 jumbo aircraft loaded to the hilt. This is just one stone. Now, above it, you see all these smaller stones that the Muslims built, rebuilt centuries later, but some of the original foundation stones that Herod made for what we call the temple mount. The temple mount is that box-like structure, and on top of it, the temple sat. And Herod built this structure around it so that the temple mount that was once uneven and so forth, he, <clears throat> he created in it all these arches and buried them with soil, and he created a beautiful flat spot because he was a magnificent architect. Now, he was a very evil man, but he was an incredible architect. Now, how they got that stone there, people are still scratching their heads. But I want to tell you, this is kids' play compared to the foundation stones that are described in the holy city. In fact, let's look at uh, some of these stones, beginning in verse 19. You might want to write above each stone the color, if that will help you, if you're not aware of all these gemstones. We read, the foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper. Jasper is typically, as we've already noted, the color of blood red. The second, sapphire. Sapphire is a deep blue color. In fact, in Exodus chapter 24 and verse 10 we are told that this is the stone that is under God's feet. The third stone is Chalcedony. That's kind of a greenish-blue gemstone. The fourth is emerald. Many of you know an emerald stone. It's a deep green color. The fifth is Sardonyx. And gemologists tell us that this is a white stone, sometimes with some brownish-red bands through it. The sixth stone is Sardius, that's a deep, deep red gemstone. The seventh stone here is chrysolite. That's kind of a gold-colored gemstone. The eighth stone here is beryl. That refers to the a teal blue color. The ninth stone is topaz. That's a golden greenish color stone. The tenth is chrysoprase, which is a pale green gemstone. The eleventh is jacinth. And that's a pale violet color stone. And then the twelfth that is mentioned, almethyst, it's a rich, deep purple. Now, we haven't even walked inside yet. <laughs> These are just the outside foundation stones. And John's description just staggers the imagination in light of the size of this wall. I mean, today, for men, some of the most stunning, most valuable things that they want to collect are stones of one sort or another, but all we have is little chips. God is making the very foundational walls out of these collars. What a house is the Father's house. But it's not so great just because it is so priceless. You know, when we have someone over, a relative friend who visits, and are going to stay in our house. We, we want to make it as nice as we can. My wife goes to a great extent to, to make it just very pleasurable. Why? Because we love that person. And we want them to be comfortable and enjoy our home. This is not just a, an expression of how great our God is, but it's also an expression of how much he loves you. He is making this place absolutely magnificent. Let's read further, verse 21, and the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl. Now, any good real estate agent, when they go to sell your home, among other things they'll tell you is, make sure the front door looks really good. If it needs a paint job and cleaning up or some decorations on it, because that's the very first impression people are going to get as they approach your home. The overall impression that John gives of these gates is amazing. He speaks here of 12 gates that are made out of 12 pearls, and each gate is a single pearl. We've already studied back in verse 12 that the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel are inscribed on these, but each gate is a single pearl. Now, remember, verse 17, the thickness of the wall is 144 cubits or 220 feet, or 72 yards, depending on how your translation wants to render it into English. And we're told by John that each gate is a single pearl. Now think about that. If you took the roof off of this building, you couldn't even fit one of those single pearls in this particular auditorium. And by the way, despite all the jokes we hear about Peter at the pearly gates… These gates are made out of pearl. And of course, Peter's not in any of these gates. But what's important to see here is that as God invites us into heaven, out of any material he could have used, he uses a gate of pearl. Why pearl? Well, Most of you know how pearls are made. An oyster has a little irritation, a little grain of sand. And so to protect himself, from that irritating grain of sand with a soft, shiny substance. He, he covers that wounded area over and over and over again, and it produces a magnificent pearl. And as we go through these gates of splendor, the pearl itself will remind us of the incredible price that was paid by the one who was wounded for our transgressions. Further, verse 21, in the street, of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. Gold is commonplace in heaven. Now, all the gold I own in the world is right here on my finger. And some men spend their whole lives trying to accumulate riches like gold. God uses it for asphalt in heaven. I love it. In the street of the city, please notice the Greek word here is singular. It refers to a main artery, to a city square, or to multiple streets. And since this street will be continuous and it will change direction and join other streets and avenues, you could technically say that the streets in heaven are, plural, are paved with gold. And please note, this is not some low grade of gold. This is the highest quality, and so it's likened to transparent glass. You say, Pastor Carl, do you believe that we will literally actually walk on streets of gold and that we will go through gates of pearl? Yes, I do, because that's what God said, and God said what he meant, and he meant what he said. And just like I will have a real body to walk in this place, even so, heaven is not some gaseous crowd cloud. It's a real place with real streets, and you'll have real feet on which to walk on these streets of gold, pure gold, Remember Hebrews 11, and in verse 10, as he describes those Old Testament saints in the city that they are looking forward to, the text says there that the architect and maker is God. Would you expect anything less than this? This is God who is making this place. It's a priceless place. Notice also, number nine there in your outline, heaven is a permeated place. Heaven is a permeated place. We are told now in verse 22, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. Now, John noted that some items were missing from this city, but their absence affirm great truths. There's no temple in this city. You say, now, wait a minute. We studied earlier that there was a temple there. We did. Do you remember? Let me dust off your minds. In chapters 5 and 6, it spoke of the golden altar and the brazen altar. In chapter 8 and verse 3, we're told, Another angel came and stood at the altar, holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him so that he might add to it the prayers of the saints on the golden altar, which was before the throne. Then we studied in Revelation 11 in verse 19, specifically we're told, then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. And the writer of the Hebrews quotes Exodus 25, and he tells us this in in Hebrews chapter 8. Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. For see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. In other words, when Moses comes off that mountain, he comes not just with the Ten Commandments. He comes with a set of blueprints that are patterned. They are a type. The Greek word is tupos. Sometimes you will hear of a pastor speak of a type. A type. A type is an Old Testament picture of a coming reality. And of course, if you know the book of Hebrews and you know that there are Jewish Christians who are trying to escape persecution and trying to prevent their businesses from being boycotted. And so to look more Jewish, they went back into the Jewish temple and they participated in the sacrificial system. And the writer says, what you're doing is you're being engaged in shadows. Those things were just shadows. Those were just copies of the substance, which is Christ. But the tabernacle and the temple later, the more permanent structure, wasn't something that some guy said, well, let's make it like this. Moses was given blueprints, and he is told that the one you're going to make on earth mimics the temple that is in heaven. If you go to heaven today, you'll see this heavenly temple. We saw that when the church is raptured, Revelation 4, they witness this temple that is in heaven. What happened to it? It's now gone. Why? Think about it. The church is raptured. The time of Jacob's trouble unfolds on the earth. Then the Messiah comes back to the earth. And he rules and reigns for a thousand years. And we know from the prophet Ezekiel, he goes into great lengths, there's going to be another temple that is built. There was the first temple destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, the second temple after the Solomonic temple that Zerubbabel rebuilt, that Herod did a facelift on. There's the coming temple that the Antichrist will defile. And then there's a fourth temple and what is going to be the function of it? There are going to be sacrifices. For what purpose? Instruction. They will teach people about all that Messiah had done. Now remember, at the end of the tribulation period, there will be some people who will literally physically survive that seven-year period. The sheep and the goats will be, re- will be separated, only sheep in their physical bodies who survive the tribulation will enter into the millennial reign, as will resurrected Old Testament saints and resurrected church saints. We studied this in detail. You can go back and study it in chapter 20 if this is new to you. And we saw that during this 1,000-year period, people will live long periods of time. In fact, the only reason someone would live just to be 100 and then killed would be because of the judgment of the Messiah who rule and reign with a rod of iron. People, it appears, will live the whole thousand years. Their years will be like a tree, Isaiah said. And Zechariah, the prophet tells us in chapters 12 through 14 that during this time when Messiah is on the earth, that people will make pilgrimages to Jerusalem. In fact, every year for a particular feast, it's a required pilgrimage that every nation of the world is represented and what are they going to learn? They're going to learn from that millennial temple all that the Messiah did, all that these sacrifices pictured in men and women and teenagers and boys and girls will have to make a decision for Jesus. You say, why wouldn't everyone believe because of the hardness of man's heart? And at the end of the thousand years where the devil has been locked up for a thousand years, he'll be loosed and he'll tempt the children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and however many greats you can have over a thousand years. And many, like the sand of the seashore, will go against God's Messiah. So now the function of a temple in heaven is no longer needed. Look, if I get raptured today, I want to see this temple. God tells me it's there. And maybe I would be privileged enough for God to explain it to me such that during the time of the millennial reign of Christ, I could be one of his teachers. I don't know. Maybe you could be. And God could use you to explain to the nations of the world all that Jesus did for their behalf and how it was all pictured and prophesied. It will be just incredible proof that everything that God said is true, that his book, the Bible, is unique. But that's all over. So at the end of the thousand years, the temple is gone. I saw no temple in it for the Lord God, the Almighty, the Lamb are its temple. You see, remember, there are times when God, in a very localized way, would come in His Shekinah and He would appear in the Holy of Holies. But now in the new Jerusalem, God's presence itself will literally fill this city. There will be no need for a sanctuary or a church building in the New Jerusalem. The whole place will be a house of worship. The whole city will be a place to worship. And in one sense, what we are supposed to capture in this life, we will fully get then. You say, we think of worship, we come here, we, we sing together and the Lord's Day, and we're supposed to do that. And to those who are watching live streaming, I'm glad you're watching. And let me tell you who the live stream is for. It's for people in other time zones. Some weeks we have as many as 30 states of people who are live streaming. And they, on a different time zone, will go to their church at 11 o'clock. And I'm glad for that. And we have some people in foreign countries who live stream with us each week. But the live stream is not for the guy who says, Honey, I don't feel like going to church. No, I don't either. Let's just drink our coffee in bed, and we'll watch Pastor Carl. That's forsaking the assembling together. No, it's for the person in our church family who can't go to church. They're sick. They're elderly. They're infirm. They're a mom who's got some sick children, so she has to be there home with them. That's who it's for. But but we often think of worship. You know, we come, we sing some songs, and it's all important. But worship, according to the Bible, is our whole life. We present ourselves to God as a living and holy sacrifice. Malachi is a great little book I preached years ago. And it reminds us that all of life is a worship service. Paul says it the, in these words: Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, you do all to the glory of God. And there, in the Father's house, in our perfected, sinless, glorified bodies, we will indeed worship the Father. What a future for those who believe in Christ alone! Finally, I'm almost done. Heaven is a perfect place. Heaven is a perfect place. Let's read now, beginning in verse 23. And this city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. So the light that illuminates this city is God Himself. Now think about this. Remember years earlier, John wrote a little epistle, we call it First John. And he said this, he said, this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light. And in Him, there is no darkness at all. God is love. God is a consuming wrath. God is light. The three God is statements in the Bible. So one aspect of God is He is light. And light can be used of literal light in the Bible, but it can also be used metaphorically of ignorance that is dispelled. And so the light of truth has dispelled the darkness of ignorance. Or as John uses it there in 1 John 1, light is used to describe the opposite of darkness, the opposite of sin. And if you remember in the context, he's not speaking about our relationship with God, but our fellowship, our relationship is eternal, our fellowship is moment by moment. And so he speaks about maintaining and keeping our fellowship with the Lord. And we do that when there's no unconfessed sin in our life. When we walk in the light as He is in the light, is holy and is pure. And let me say parenthetically here, these Bible teachers who say that God can be wrong and that we need to forgive God are absolutely blaspheming Him. I read an article some years ago in Charisma magazine. It was enough to make me throw up. I would read that magazine on occasion to know what the charismaniacs that are filled with wacko doctrine, and we'll discuss this when we come to chapter 22, and I'm not being unloving. God knows it because many of these people are buying into a system that will end them up in the end in hell. Truth is not unloving. Truth is the most loving thing you can tell a person. So, no, I don't buy Christianity today anymore. It's become an apostate magazine. And certainly I won't even read Charisma magazine unless I can get a free copy online because I want to know what some of these people are teaching. Why? Because I'm called to protect my sheep. But to say that God needs to be forgiven is blasphemy, utter blasphemy. Now get back to the text. And the city has no need of the sun. Or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God is illuminated and its lamp is the Lamb. If God seems far away to you this morning, God didn't move, you moved. It's not God who needs to get right, we need to get right. Well, when we're in heaven, heaven's a perfect place, there's no sin, and the light of God himself fills the place. Think about this for a moment. Do you remember on that occasion when Peter, James, and John, they were there on the Mount of Transfiguration and they get a glimpse of glory? And the Bible says Jesus was transfigured before them and His face shone like the sun and His garments became white as light. And remember, this was in His pre-glorified body, yet they had a glimpse of the brightness of God. Or think about the prophet Malachi who compares the S-O-N, the Messiah, to the S-U-N because of the brightness of God. Or think about that moment when Jesus pulled back one of the shades of heaven one afternoon and it blinded the Apostle Paul, not at night, but at midday when the sun is highest and brightest in the sky and it knocks him to the ground by the brightness and he's blinded for three days. Well, that same light will fill this city. No shadows, no sun, no moon there because the glory of God will illumine this place. You might be thinking, well, I enjoy the sunsets. Remember, this is just the capital city. It's going to come and sit on a new heaven and a new earth, and I won't be at all surprised if much of God's original creation that has now fallen will be mimicked, at least on the new earth. But here's the point. Verse 24, the nations will walk by its light in the kings of the earth, will bring their glory into it. This city is so bright that it provides light for the saved. Here described the nations. Do you remember who will be recipients during this time? We're told, we studied it back in Revelation 7 and verse 9, I looked and behold, a great multitude which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb. We saw the Great Commission will be fulfilled During the tribulation period, what we haven't done in 2,000 years, God will do. And yes, even some kings, what we might call politicians or presidents or prime ministers, even some of them can know and love and serve the Lord. I know that's hard to believe sometimes. But these kings will bring their glory along with regular folks into this place, all redeemed through the grace of God. But there'll be no big shots there no one in a caravan of vehicles, oh, here comes so-and-so, not in this place, no peacocks to strut around, no superstar well-known Christian figures, God alone will receive the glory and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. Why? Because these are the people who have been redeemed through the blood of the cross. And notice its gates will never be closed. That would jump off the page to any first century reader. Why? Because every night you close the gates to protect your city. Just like every night most of you lock your doors to protect your home. There's no sin in this place. There's no evil in this place. In fact, there's no night in this place. No key is needed. And to highlight this truth, verse 27, and nothing, nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying Shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Very similar to what you read in other New Testament passages. Do not be deceived. The unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor homosexuals. None of these people will inherit the kingdom of God. But such were some of you. I was talking to a guy this week. Sounds to me like you're a drunk. said, I am. I said, Well, I'm glad you're at least willing to call it what it is. It's not a disease. If you catch some disease, why would God hold you morally accountable for it? If God made you homosexual and He created you this way, how could He hold you morally accountable for it? He can't. These are sinful choices. And when a person is born again, everything begins to change, there's a new direction that begins to take place in a person's life. Understand, he is not saying that good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. Again, he's not saying that. The wicked, lost, unbelieving, cowardly have already found their place, chapter 20, in the lake of fire. These are only saints, nothing unclean. Notice he says... No one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it. Does that mean only sinless people go into heaven? Of course not. John, who also wrote in First John, he said, "We, the one who says, I have no sin, he, he's lying. He's making God out to be a liar, and he's mocking God's Word. He says, we all stumble, James will write in many ways. The key word is practice. He will speak of lying in the next chapter. Those who love lying, you know what? Believers don't love to lie. You may be tempted to lie, but a believer doesn't love to lie. He hates it. Why? Because he has a new nature. No one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it. Good study this week. Just search out in the Bible things that God calls an abomination like bestiality, like homosexuality, like transgenderism, and on I could go. Those are abominations. People like that will never see the inside of God's kingdom unless they repent. And to underscore it, he says, to gain entrance, your name must be written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, how are we going to apply this? Let me make two suggestions. Number one, this passage gives us hope in the most painful situations of life. There are believers worldwide today who will pay the ultimate price for following Jesus, and they know it. Every single day, there are Christians who lose their lives because they follow Jesus. A day doesn't go by There are other believers today who are suffering with heartaches, they've lost a loved one. Some even here have some incurable diseases. There are still others who come to me and they describe the abusive relationships they've been in, others who seemingly are struggling to survive from week to week. But I want to tell you, someday this is all going to change. This is not our home. Paul will write in Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. I consider, some of your translations say, I reckon, it's legisomizo. It's the Greek word, that it's a bookkeeping term. Legisomai, that means you have a ledger and on one side of the ledger, you put the pros and the other side, you put the cons. And Paul says, when I think about the glory to come and then all the heartache I've been through, and my, that man has a list of heartaches in Second Corinthians 11. He says, it doesn't even begin to compare to anything that is in front of us. Now, that's a biblical axiom we can stand on. And As your pastor, I'm aware of many of you who are going through some deep darkness right now. And you don't have the answer to what you're in. But don't put your hope in this world. This world's passing away. And the problems and the groaning and the moanings, and the suffering, it's not forever. Doesn't even begin to compare. When the light of the world comes back, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death, no longer any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Paul says, we see in a mirror dimly now, but someday face to face. The sufferings of this world are not worthy to be compared for what is out in front of us this morning. Let me also ask or say by application to enter God's holy city, you must have your name in his book. The last verse in this chapter warns us that the only people who will gain entrance are those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Is your name there this morning? You say, I hope so. I hope so kind of faith it's not a good kind of faith. You've got to know, and the Bible says you can know that you have eternal life. I mean, think about this for just a second. Heaven is a perfect place. Can you imagine going to a place where there's no sadness, no pain, no inequalities set between us and God? no suffering, no death, no funerals, no mourning. I mean, wouldn't you want to go to a place like that? How foolish not to go there when you die or when Jesus comes back. And if you don't go there, it will be because you chose not to go there because you did not come through the only person who can bring you there, and his name is Jesus. Now, Father... Thank you that our name can be written in the Lamb's Book of Life if we will come to Jesus. We know we must change our mind about sin, that what you call evil is indeed evil. And we are not just sorry for it, but we are willing to admit that it needs to be forgiven and changed. And thank you that if we will put our faith where you put our sin on Jesus. We can become a new creation that we can begin to grow and change. Oh, we may have our ups and downs, but a new direction begins to root into our hearts and lives. I pray today for someone who is really unsure of their eternal destiny. They may be in this room. They may be live streaming. They may be in Graniteville or Grays or Bluffton. Help them to believe what you promised, that you cannot lie, that Because of what Jesus did, whosoever will may come, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, that whoever will call on his name will be saved. Help them, Father, to simply say, Lord Jesus, save me. And Father, for the many who are listening, who are in the thick of heartache, help us not to fix our hope on this world. Remind us afresh that our citizenship is in heaven from whom we eagerly wait for a Savior. Help us to set our hearts and affections on the things that are above and not the things that are upon the earth. Help us to recognize that the current sufferings don't even compare for what you have in front of us. May we be testimonies and trophies of your incredible grace for the glory of Jesus, we ask it, and in his name, amen.